Hello, wonderful friends. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, it's great to have you along today. So this is episode number 37 of the podcast. Uh, We've been at this for 37 weeks. We are rolling. Uh, This is part six of a series that we're doing for the season of Lent and beyond. And I'm saying that because Originally, it was going to be just be for the season of Lent leading up to Easter. And then I was like, I have a couple more things I think I might want to talk about. So I might go a little bit longer. We'll, we'll see. Um, but this is episode 37, part six. And the series is called uh, God's Not Mad. And basically, to give some context, I read a book back in January called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by a guy named Brian Zond. And he was actually on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, so you should go definitely check out that episode. It was a lot of fun to uh, talk with him. Um, but I read this book, and it's all about God's love, God's grace, all the things that we really drill deep into on this podcast. And the book really affected me in a, in a in profound ways. And so what I've been doing in this series is kind of taking themes or ideas from the book and then sharing with you uh, the spider web, mad scientist, crazy laboratory of ideas that uh, or thoughts that these themes in this book have created in my own heart and my own mind um, as I kind of take them apart, think about them, process through them, and kind of some different conclusions that I'm coming to in my own life. So I'm kind of taking you along on that journey uh, that this book has sent me on in my own life. So uh, that's what this series is about. And uh, that's kind of where it originated from. If this is your first time dropping by, I should probably tell you a little bit about, real quick, uh, what this, what the heck is going on here in this, uh, what this What If Project, what is this thing? So, like I said, we're 37 episodes in. Uh, back in September of 2018, uh, we kicked this thing off. And it's a, a project that was really brewing in my heart for a good year to two years before that it really took a lot of time to think through some things um, before I opened up my yap and started talking about it. Um, but the What If Project basically it, it explores the question of what if there are ways of understanding God and the Bible and spirituality and faith and all those different kinds of things that are just different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. And what if those different ways of understanding God are really the the key or the pathway to having a deeper understanding and more real understanding of who God is um, and what God is all about. And so that's kind of what the project is. Uh, we also explore the question of what if there are ways of bringing church to people instead of bringing people to church. And that's an aspect that now that I'm done with my dissertation um, and I am just about graduated, uh, there will be some more things popping up on the horizon along um, the exploration of that particular question. Um, Last year for Easter, uh, Palm Sunday, I went out um, to our local community and I carried with me palm branches and a priest stole. And I went around to local businesses and I gave palm branches to people who maybe wanted to go to church but uh, had to work or maybe they didn't want to go to church because they're afraid of church, but yet for some reason they wanted a palm branch. And so I had some interesting conversations with people 
um, kind of went out and did this thing and in essence brought an aspect of church uh, to people instead of trying to bring those people to church. So there's some other things like that um, brewing, bubbling on the back burner of my mind, and that stuff will be happening uh, probably later on this year. But that to say, um, I need to tell my friends, especially if you've been here for more than a few weeks, uh, I have a new microphone. I am talking into a new microphone, and it is magical. It is a magical experience. So my parents um, bought me a microphone along with a microphone boom that is attached to my desk. So this microphone is hanging in front of my face, uh, defying gravity, and there's a pop filter in front of that microphone so that my voice does not pop when I say the letter P and uh, make a weird noise in the microphone. So after I defended my dissertation a couple weeks ago, my parents invited me and Dana and Jordan over for dinner. They cooked us up some filet mignon or mignon. Well, I don't know. How do you say it in the, I don't know, whatever, some filets. And uh, it was incredible. And we had such a good time. And they surprised me with this wonderful microphone. And uh, I just am so grateful for them. Um, they show their crazy son with his crazy ideas and his crazy project, um, so much love and support, and uh, they wanted this to be able to sound as crisp and wonderful as possible, and uh, they have helped me achieve that for sure. So, that to say, episode 37, I'm calling this episode, um, How the Jesus I Heard About Was Different Than the Jesus I Saw. How the Jesus I Heard About was different than the Jesus I saw. So what I want to do this week is I want to kind of dip, I want to dip our small pinky toe into the book of, drumroll please, Revelation, okay? Now eventually, one day, um, somewhere down the road, when I'm feeling a little bit more brave and spunky and probably snarky, uh, we're going to do a longer series on the book of Revelation, and talk about some of the more well-known uh, pieces of the text. But today, I just want to drill down into one story, one image, one theme, one really small segment, and give a little bit more insight into this idea that that God's not mad at the world, right? Like, He never was mad. He never will be mad. He's just not mad. God's not mad. Now, when I was a kid, I was taught that Revelation is about obviously the end of the world, right? Like, what else would it be about? Uh, last week, I, I talked about our, our tall, slim pastor with the suit on who preached through the book of Revelation when I was like 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that bracket of ages, uh, years old. And he told us about uh, how it was a picture of what was going to happen when Jesus came back and he raptured all of his believers away and kind of left the rest of the world behind to be destroyed uh, by the fire of God's wrath. And absolutely horrifying, to say the least, right? Like, God's angry, God is ticked off, and you and me, we're the objects of that wrath. Unless we, of course, believe that Jesus died to take our punishment, then we get like a free pass, a golden ticket into heaven, and everything is good, right? That's the gospel. Uh, that's what I was taught. Now, the church that he went to, uh, that I went to, uh, was... Oh, I was like part of this uh, Christian school that I also went to and through the 5th and 12th grades. 
And like right around the time that this pastor was preaching these sermons, uh, my Bible teacher was also taking our class through the book of Revelation. Now, I don't remember if it was the same year. It was a few years later. Um, the, the timing is kind of foggy, but, but I remember sitting in class and I remember watching a movie um, about being left behind. This had nothing to do with the left behind books, the series of books. That's a whole nother, that is like a whole podcast series, just those books alone. Uh, but anyway, the, the movie was about being left behind after the rapture. And I remember the teacher talking about how like awful it was going to be and why it was so important to make sure that we were, quote, right with God and that our families were, quote, right with God so that what happened to the people in the movie wouldn't happen to us and our loved ones. And she, and she would say things like, you know, yeah, this is Hollywood. This is drama. This is a script that somebody wrote. These are actors, but it's a really accurate picture of what the end of the world is going to be like. And, and so all growing up, even in the like high school, college, I was taught that whatever the book of Revelation is, whatever view you want to take about it, it's about one thing and one thing for certain, and that is the end of the world. But but can I say that like this ancient book, right, written 2000 or so years ago, being about the end of the world, it never really made a lot of sense to me. Again, the tall, slim pastor with the Sudan said it was, as did my Sunday school teachers, uh, my Bible teachers all throughout school, even in the college and even in the seminary. But even so, deep down inside, I always thought that it all sounded a little bit crazy. And I always thought that anybody who insisted upon having such a firm grasp on a on a book that is like laced with images of dragons and fires and beasts and creatures with multiple heads and all sorts of like Harry Potter-like imagery, right? I always thought that, that such a person was maybe a little bit too confident and maybe in this topic, not somebody who I should give so much attention to. And, and so I've always had my doubts about what this book is really about. Now, uh, Brian Zond in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, gives what I think is some much needed and helpful context for the book of Revelation. He points out that uh, Revelation is a subversive form of Jewish writing, known as apocalyptic uh, literature, and that it served the purpose not really of telling the future or foretelling what was going to be happening in the future, but of poetically and vibrantly interpreting and even describing its own present time. Here's a quote from the book. He says, Revelation is not about the 21st century. But, he says, nothing could be more relevant for the 21st century than the dreamlike vision that John, who was the writer of Revelation, saw. With great skill, John shows us how Jesus' lamb-like kingdom is the saving alternative to the beast-like empires of the world. Through his masterful use of drama and symbol, those who read John's theatrical play are shown that the way of the beast leads only to the hellish lake of fire, while the way of the lamb leads to the heavenly city. Revelation is not about a violent end of the world, it's about the end of the evil of violence. The book of Revelation does not anticipate the end of God's good creation, but the end of the death-wielding empire. And so rather than John having the end of the world kind of downloaded to his brain, and then being told by God to write it down so that all of humanity would have a, a guidebook for what the end of the world would look like, John took his pen to the page, 
as a peaceful act of rebellion or protest against the empire's superpower of his day, which was the Romans. Right, the Roman Empire was about violence. Jesus was about peace. The empire was about dominance. Jesus was about humility. The empire was about the rich, but Jesus was about the poor. The empire was about victory through the sword. Jesus was about peace through crucifixion. Right, On and on and on the opposites go all throughout the text as John really masterfully weaves together these images of dragons and fires and beasts to, to make its point that the Roman Empire is nothing more than a bully that is not going to have the last word. And then he goes on, Brian Zahn, and he says this. He says, John is very careful to never mention Rome directly. Instead, John speaks of Babylon, which was another empire in the um, Old Testament that um, kind of had its boot on the throat of the Israelites. Uh, so instead, John speaks about Babylon, the beast, the great whore, uh, and elaborate veiled references to Caesar Nero. Zahn says it's a form of resistance to the powerful seduction of Roman civil religion that, that John composes his prophetic and theatrical writing. He wants his readers, who he fears are slipping into a complacent complicity with Rome, to remember that Rome isn't evil only when it persecutes Christians. Rather, Rome is always evil because of its idolatry and injustice towards others. Empire is always a direct challenge to the kingdom of God. And so rather than come right out and declare, hey, Rome is evil, everybody should stay away, John paints a poetic masterpiece that really would have been well understood by the original readers that he sent the letter to, but has been misunderstood and misread and misapplied by much of contemporary Christianity as this letter has made its way down through the generations. And although I don't claim to have anywhere near what uh, could be called a, a tight grip on understanding what this book is, I do think that Zahn's context is a much more accurate way to understand it than viewing it by a word-by-word or a blow-by-blow description of what the end times are going to be. So, anyways, let's talk about that one story, uh, that one image, that one theme, that one small segment that I mentioned earlier, and kind of dig a little bit deeper into this idea that God's not mad. Revelation chapter 4 is where I want to kind of at least begin uh, today opens up with uh, this, this vision of a worship ceremony of sorts, um, far greater than anything ever experienced in Rome. Now, Rome, remember, was known for the extravagant ways in which it, uh, its people would worship the empire, or the emperor, I should say. Uh, for example, they refer to uh, Caesar as the son of God. And so, so John amps up the images of worship in his letter and shows that the only one who is truly worthy of any such worship is Jesus the Christ. And then in chapter 5, which is where I want to kind of land, uh, something strange happens. And if we read it too quickly, we kind of miss what I think is the is a really significant um, twist of events. So uh, I want to kind of just slow it down a little bit here in chapter 5. Uh, Revelation 5, John says that he sees a scroll. Uh, remember, he's having a vision, he's having a dream, right? He sees a scroll in the hand of the one who sits on the throne of the universe. And it's a scroll that seems to represent God's heart and intention and love for all of humanity. And opening this scroll uh, means unleashing salvation for the entire cosmos. But, but sadly, John says that no one was found worthy enough to initiate 
this redemptive goodness that was contained in this scroll. Uh, the searching for someone continued and continued and continued and continued, but no one anywhere was found worthy to open up this scroll. Even the great Jewish heroes, right, like Abraham, Elijah, Moses, David, all those guys, nobody was worthy enough, strong enough, able enough to, to carry forth uh, such a precious task from the hand of the Creator and bring that forward into all of his creation. And so John tells us that when he realized that no one was worthy to open the scroll, he began to weep, right? And, and, like, and like, wouldn't, wouldn't you respond the same? Because the thought that a small scroll that have just unraveled could restore the entirety of the universe to the way that God intended it to be and then save the world and everybody in it, the thought of that going to waste and not being able to accomplish what it was meant to accomplish was just too much for John to bear. And so he wept, and he wept, and he wept, and he wept. But then something weird happened. I'm an elder, and uh, the book of Revelation talks about 24 elders, which is another episode in itself. We're just going to say that one of those 24 elders, who was guiding John around throughout this portion of his, his vision, shouted to John, Right? So they're, they're looking for somebody to open the scroll. They can't find anybody. John's crying. This elder shouts to John, John, stop weeping. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. And he is worthy to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Jesus, right? The lion, the heir to the King David's throne, the great warrior king. He is here and he is worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll and initiate God's redemptive plan that will ultimately restore the cosmos, the entire universe, to the way that it was always intended to be. Here's the twist. Interestingly, John looks with his eyes expecting to see a lion, but he doesn't see a lion. Instead, he says, then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but now it was standing. Isn't that interesting, right? John heard the elder say that Jesus the lion was opening the scroll. But then when John looked with his own eyes, he saw the slaughtered lamb. His ears heard lion, his eyes saw lamb. And for some odd reason, this really resonates with me. Uh, I said in an earlier uh, episode that I've been studying the Bible since I was a kid. But I told you I went to a private Christian school from the 5th through 12th grades, uh, Sunday school, church, Bible college, seminary. I've pastored churches. And in all, all of those places, I've heard over and over and over again, and even preached and taught over and over and over again, the very same words that John heard from that elder. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. My professors taught me about Jesus's lion-like power. Uh, my pastors told me stories of Jesus's lion-like strength. They told me that he is a lion. Like the great Aslan in the C.S. Lewis stories, he is gentle, but he is dangerous. Right? My teachers told me that he is strong. They said that he is unable to be defeated. 
All of my life, my ears heard that Jesus is a lion. But then something happened. Over the last few years, I've started to really look for Jesus uh, on my own. And I've been asking a lot of questions. Like, who is this mysterious man? And why am I so captivated by him to the point where every week I have this microphone hanging in front of my face and I record thoughts about him? Like, where, where is he in the world? What is he doing? What is he saying? Who is this guy, right? And you know what I found? I've been looking and looking and looking and searching everywhere. And rather than find a bloodthirsty lion who is nice and gentle one moment, but a dangerous killing machine the next, my eyes saw a lamb. My eyes have seen a lamb. I, f- I found a lamb that is covered not in the blood of someone or something that he has just devoured, but a lamb that is covered in his own blood after being all but destroyed by those who he held close to his heart. I found a lamb that had been beaten, kicked, spit on, put down. A lamb who was slaughtered, abused, and ridiculed. I found a lamb who is on the side of the weak. Weak like the kid who gets picked on every day during gym class. I found a God who is on the side of the outcast. The outcast like like the LGBTQ person who has been pushed away by his own family. I found a God who is a friend of everyone. Everyone like the person who is closed off to the world. Uh, They don't trust anybody because they were molested as a child. I found a God who never gives up on anyone, anywhere, not even the atheist who says that she doesn't believe in God. I found a God who is beaten down. Beaten down like the single mom working four jobs, raising three kids on two hours of sleep a night. I found a God who is taken advantage of. Taken advantage of like the husband who lost everything in his divorce with his cheating wife. I found a God who stands with the abused. Abused like the woman who is afraid every time her husband's car pulls in the driveway. I found a God who is united with those who are in pain. Pain like the teenager who cries herself to sleep at night when she hears her mom and dad fighting in the other room. If I'm being 100% honest, I found something in the lamb that for some reason I never really found or saw very clearly in the lion. Now, before you tell me that Jesus is strong and he is a lion, he is almighty, he's omnipotent, I know, relax, deep breath, okay? I'm not saying he's not those things. What I am saying, though, is that I think both images of Jesus have their place. He's a lion and he's a lamb. But if I'm being really honest with you, I think he's much more of a lamb than he is a lion. And I think that sometimes, as North American, white, evangelical Christians, uh, we like to emphasize his lionness over his lambness. I don't know if that's, those are words, but they are now. We like to emphasize his lionness over his lambness because I think we like this idea of following a killing machine, of following someone who exhibits unbelievable strength, someone who is fierce, someone who is mighty, someone who is known for uh, winning wars in the jungle, someone who is vicious, someone who is ferocious, someone who protects, someone who fights back, someone who is kind in one moment and 
can be hostile in the neck, someone who has dangerously sharp claws. And I think we like that because it makes it easier for us to justify our own wars, our own hatred, our own discrimination, our own outcasting, our own revenge, our own bitterness, our own judgment, our own politics, our own dangerously sharp words, right? Because if Jesus is a lion who is ferocious, then it gives me permission to be ferocious, If Jesus is a lion who is justified in his anger, well, then it justifies my own anger. If Jesus is a lion who fights back, then it gives me permission to fight back. Like, let's be real. If God has a mean streak or a mean side or or whatever, then it makes it much easier for me to justify my own mean side, right? Now, growing up, my elders told me about Jesus the lion Just like in Revelation 5, uh, the elder told John about Jesus the lion. But just like John, I turned around and I started looking for Jesus uh, with my own eyes. And although I I might have heard a lion, and although I might have heard other people refer to him as a lion, I've come to see a lamb. You see, God's not angry, guys. God's not mad. The writer uh, James in the Bible once said that, Quote, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's the devil. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the lion of Judah only because the lion was the actual literal symbol of the tribe of Judah, uh, whom Jesus' ancestors descended from. The truth is that Jesus is the lion of Judah, yes, but the lion of Judah is a slaughtered lamb who shouts forgiveness and love, and grace, and mercy, even as his his enemies beat him, and deface him, and abuse him, and mock him, and kill him. And the call is for you and me to do the same. So, So let's let the devil prowl around like the roaring lion that he is, while you and I follow in the footsteps of the slaughtered lamb, offering love, and grace, and forgiveness, and mercy for everyone, everywhere. That's the call for us. That's what we get to join into. So let's respond to the call today. Uh, God is not mad. God is not mad. This, my friends, was episode number 37 and part six of our series, God's Not Mad. I hope it challenged you, hope it encouraged you, and hope it pushes you forward in your faith and in your thinking about God. Much love to you, and uh, see you next time for episode number 38. Bye-bye.